read uh, beginning in chapter 2 of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we typically take a moment um, before uh, we look into the, just directly into the text of God's word for teaching um, to, to take a moment to corporately engage in prayer together. Uh, and this morning, we're afforded the unique opportunity to do that surrounding a pretty big, pivotal, transitional moment in the life of, look, tons of people uh, that are a part of, of, of schools all around us, but we specifically have students, we have seniors uh, that we want to celebrate this morning. This morning, uh, during during this worship hour in our in our student wing on the other side of the campus, we have students that uh, are graduating that are celebrating with friends and family this morning. So here's the here's the best thing that we can do. Look, as we worship together uh, and have two different services, one of the most helpful things that we can do is understand. Man, look, they're they're not in here. You're not seeing them on this stage this morning. Well, you need to see them on the screen so you can know who they are, so that we can take an opportunity to pray for them. So I want to introduce you to the, the folks that are a part of Double Oak Community Church that are graduating this year. This is Stella Bell. Uh, she's graduating from Chelsea High School. Her parents are Tony and Rosalind. Elijah Callisto, graduating from Oak Mountain, uh, belongs to John and Courtney. Carter DeLoach, graduating from Chelsea High School. Uh, this is Ben and Kylie's son. Barrett Hampton from Evangel Christian School. Uh, Barrett belongs to Wes and Andrea. Caleb Honeycutt, graduating from Chelsea High School, son of Chris and Rebecca. Christian Callaher, uh, graduating from Chelsea High School, Steve and Melissa's son. Campbell McClooney, Chelsea High School, uh, he's the son of Michael and Samantha. Riley Kate Stringfellow, graduating from Evangel Christian School, Matt and Carly's daughter. And Maddie Vale, graduating from Chelsea High School, uh, daughter of Jacob and Chessa. Man, incredible people, uh, a number of whom have just really uh, grown up in this church uh, for double oak, from when we were just Mount Laurel to even here the last four or five years, just just been here and been a part of who we are. Um, look, I, I like to, I used to think like it wasn't that long ago that I was a senior in high school, right? You like to think that too. But we know the reality. It's been a really, really long time. When the laughter deepens, that's when you know. You're like, oh, this is tough. This is real. Um, but it's been a long time. Um, man, think about the life that you've experienced this in. And think about that season this morning, even for you, how formative it was and how there was great celebration surrounding it. But you're stepping out into the unknown in so many ways. Can we just take a moment to pray for these students this morning? And, and ultimately, this is what we want to pray. And I want to be very clear with this. We want to pray that they would live lives that reflect they trust in Jesus wholeheartedly, that the gospel is precious to them, and that they would be protected, and we can just say this very clearly, protected from the evil one, right? That, that in this season of transition, the things that they're going to go out and experience and live on their own, quite often for the first time, that the Lord would just truly protect them from the evil one. So let's take this opportunity to bow our heads uh, and pray for these wonderful seniors together. Heavenly Father, for many of us, it has been quite a while since we were seniors. Um, and maybe we've even forgotten uh, that season. I, I know for so many of them, there's, there's just celebration and excitement, and rightfully so. Uh, their family and their friends are, are celebrating this, this incredible accomplishment uh, and, and ultimately celebrating this opportunity in the next phase of life. Um, Father, we long for these students to grow uh, in wisdom, 
Uh, we want them to grow scholastically. We want them to grow vocationally in their jobs and all of these things. But more importantly, Father, in this season, would you assure them of the gospel? Would you allow them to find their treasure in you, to trust in you above all things? And in a world that's going to clamor for, for their attention and for their affection in every way, God, would you set their hearts on Christ? Would you cause them to trust in you? And Father, would we be a people, would we be a church to them that as they return throughout different seasons, after semesters, after breaks, that we take opportunities to encourage them in the gospel, to ask how they are, to go get a cup of coffee with them and try to pray with them and for them and help them in any way we can. God, make us those people that, that would give our lives to them. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, Philippians 2 is where we're going to be today. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. This is daunting because in so many ways it is one of um, the paramount sections of Scripture in the entirety of the New Testament, especially the epistles. Especially verses 6 through 11, we're going to get down uh, to, to what is the crux of why Paul would write this letter at all. He's writing to tell these believers, this group of people in Philippi, this little Rome of sorts, this little group of folks that are Christians in this place, how they should live their lives. How they should live their lives. And ultimately today, what we're going to see is where all of the motivation, where all of the desire to live the Christian life not only should, but can and does come from. Paul's writing to them and he's telling them, and we even saw last week, the end of chapter one, he's telling them the main thing. He's telling them the main thing. Remember, he used those words. He said, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. So this is the main thing. And today, as we read this scripture, we're going to get a really helpful picture of what that looks like, how that takes place. We're going to find that in Philippians 2, chapter 1, or Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Um, here is the thing. Before, before we, we read this, there's one more thing that I think we have to see and recognize and understand. I think it might even be helpful to connect this uh, to graduation. Um, when I graduated, there was a commencement speech. There was someone that gave this address to all of these people, all of these students like me that are embarking on this new season of life. They're going to walk into this great big world and someone is going to tell us and that me in that moment and, and the students I was gathered with, someone told you. And then as these graduations come up for, for Chelsea and Oak Mountain and Evangel and all these different students, they're going to be people that, that present this speech, this commencement. They tell them these great grandiose things. To prepare them for life. Do you remember yours? Me neither. Me neither. Why is that? Because we were caught up in life. In the middle of the, the, the pageantry and the excitement and the celebration and all of those things. That commencement happened. But quite often in moments where lots going on we miss Things of importance. Paul's working really hard in this passage to tell these believers, this is the main thing. Don't miss it. So my prayer for us today is that as we read this text, even right now, 
that God, by the power of his spirit, would accomplish in us this. We wouldn't miss the main thing, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read this together. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, 1 through 11, it says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. There's so much packed in here, and if you're like me, when you read the scriptures, quite often you read it, you see it, you took in all the words, every single word, and yet you kind of look up it's like they're reading comprehension tests, and somebody's like, what did it say? And you're like, I don't know. You read it, right? You saw it. But you're like, what does all of this mean? What is happening in this moment? Let's break it down and just like look at this passage with a framework that helps us simply understand what Paul is doing, what he's writing to the Philippians, and what he's doing for us. This is the thrust of the passage. Everything builds off of the reality that we just saw in chapter 1 and verse 27, that only let your life be worthy of the gospel, the manner of your life, the way which you live, the things that you do, but even more than that, who you are, be worthy of the gospel. That's what's happening here. And then Paul uses this emotional language. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement, any fellowship, any connection, any relation in the spirit, do this. And this is the objective. This is what he says. He says, complete my joy. And what does that look like? What it looks like is this. It's having the same mind. Being in the same spirit together. And then he talks about what it looks like to do that. And there's all this imagery of thinking about other people. And not being conceited. Not being worried about one's own identity. And then he uses Christ not only as the model for how to live, but as the motivation. The thrust behind everything. This is why people that love Jesus can love others as they love themselves. This is why believers can seek to 
love God with all that they are because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the humility that's found in it. We're going to see so much of that. So just understand this core basis, this is it. To live a life worthy of the gospel, it looks like this. Having one mind focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the humility that comes with it. Let's kind of dive into a couple of these verses very specifically. Verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul's doing something, he's doing something rhetorically here and he's using this persuasive language to get his point across. When he says, so if there is any, you can't read it like that. Ultimately, what, what he means is, what he's saying, the, the, the words of the original text would say it this way. So if, any, if there's any encouragement, which there is, Right, Because he's talked about this throughout the whole letter as he's built up to this point. Look back into chapter 1 and verse 3, what's happening. He's talking about, I thank the Lord every time that I remember you. It's obvious that there's this deep connection between Paul and these believers. So much so that there, there are all, all kinds of people who would describe this book, Philippians, as, as friendship. It's a book of friendship, but I think it's different than that. And most helpful writers would help us to see it's actually a book about family. He's saying, look, these people are so connected to me. This is what Paul is saying. You are so dear to me. Look at what we've experienced. Look at what we've walked through together. So when he says, if there's any encouragement, if there's any fellowship, if there's any sympathy, if there's any love, he's doing this in a rhetorical way. He's saying, look, look to what we've experienced together. Look to what God has done in us. Remember what we shared. He's not saying, if you really love me, if you'll really do this, he's saying, if everything that we've experienced together is true, and we know that it is, because you and I were both there, then this is where we're going. This is how we ought to live. If there's any encouragement, love, participation in the Spirit, even before he gets to the next step, look at the way this language works. Participation, affection, sympathy. There's this idea of a collective. It's a group effort. So even as he would write before in chapter 1 and say that we're called to stand firm, that we're called to strive, and he uses that language side by side. He even uses the one mind language back in chapter 1 that he's going to use here in just a moment as the prime directive, being unified, having one mind. This ought to clue us into the fact that the life of the Christian is a collective one. This is why we try to preach so hard as, we're, as we long to be gospel people, people to whom the gospel means everything. We believe in the gospel, and we also, even as Paxton mentioned earlier, with our corporate singing, we live in the reality of the gospel. And that's not just that, that Jesus is just for, for you and me in this little individual bubble way, and I'm just worried about me. No. Every name's going to bow. Every tongue's going to confess. And we get the opportunity corporately as churches, the church universal and our local body, to help people see this group that has been transformed. Not just these little individuals, but a group of people who've been utterly and completely, radically changed by Jesus. So there's this participation aspect to it. 
And the goal is the next step toward living lives worthy of the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here's what Paul is saying. The fact that he would say complete my joy is a picture of the fact that these believers are ones who've produced joy. They're ones who've lived in a way that have reflected the joy of the Lord. And it's been shown to Paul and he's seen it. So he's not saying begin being joyful and begin producing joy as the fruit of your life. It's already happening. We talked about in the beginning how this is a group of people, this is a group of believers he's writing to that are faithful. He's not saying, hey, I'm an apostle and you need to believe these things that I'm telling you. He's saying this. He's saying, be a servant. You trust the authority that I have of speaking the gospel to you. Now live this life and let that joy increase. Let there be more. How? What does it look like? It looks like the common life. It looks like living in the reality of gospel in community with one another. The thing that we ought to show this world, the thing that we ought to live out for people to see, is ultimately this, that we're unified. Our whole world is individual. Everything is individual. To live a life where we're deeply unified is totally countercultural. And Paul's saying this is what believers look like. This idea of they will know you are Christians by your love for one another. This is the point. That the, the gospel would be so cherished by believers, by you and me, that it would be the central focus of all that we are. And therefore, what would be revealed is that this is the main thing. This is the one thing that life worthy of the gospel, trusting in, believing in, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the great identity marker for you and me. And not just you and me individually, but you and me together. So in order to live a life worthy of the gospel, he says, we've got to be of the same mind. And then he describes what being of the same mind looks like. And you need to see the collective thrust here and what he's saying. This is about a group effort. This striving together side by side, not just individually, but all of us together. And then he says this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you remember over the last couple of weeks we talked a ton about Rome as a whole, Rome as an empire, and then Philippi, this place where these believers are that Paul's writing to. It's a place that's under Roman governance, Roman authority. It's a province. It's a, it's a city. It's this, it's this place in Macedonia that, that Rome is in control of. And so much of life is emulating, is trying to be, is trying to look like Rome. It's trying to be Rome. And what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, there are all these people who live in this world of honor and shame. The greatest goal of a person in this society is to make much of oneself, to be really, really important, to be really, really valued. So much so that Paul uses this analogy back in chapter one, and he says some preach the gospel out of, out of 
envy or rivalry. He's saying that this culture is so consumed with identity and being important and mattering and having value in the eyes of other people, being loved by others, being revered by others, so much so that even people who are believers or some would even just use the gospel to try and get notoriety, to try and get gain, to try and be seen. They would take what is vilified by the world in so many ways, you got to understand, like, we got up this morning and we came to a church that sits in the middle of our community. That's an amazing thing. In this day and age, Christianity was a fledgling, small, tiny thing. So the idea that someone would use Christianity, this thing that was really not loved by society at all, in a best-case scenario, was confused, confusing to society, and they would use that to try to be seen and to have identity, and to have notoriety, and to have importance, that shows the links that people would go to to be loved. Paul's doing something really, really powerful in this moment when he uses this word conceit. When he uses this word conceit, he's describing the foolishness of trying to live and gain honor from the perception of other people. There's this, there's this writer, her name's Carolyn Osik. He, she's done great work, uh, a commentator on, on Philippians and Philemon as well. I want to read this quote to you that kind of describes in a helpful way what Paul's doing in this moment. This is the world in which he writes Philippians to. He says, in this highly competitive social world in which maintaining one's honor consists largely of keeping up appearances so as to be praised and esteemed by others. Having an inflated but empty opinion of oneself. So stop right here and see this. There are these people. They've got the opinion they have of themselves is empty. And yet they long to inflate it. Presenting a false appearance. All of these things speak to the compulsion to be thought well of regardless of whether there's substantive quality of character to match the appearance. Such a false shell with empty content is contrasted to humility that encourages the countercultural attitude of seeing oneself as insignificant. Now, let's let this hang for a second because there's some super important language in here that's going to help us understand this world, and I think it's going to help us understand ours as well. The first one is that this world, the whole goal was keeping up appearances. Does that sound like the world you and I live in today? My parents used to love this show. I think it comes on, uh, I think it's on PBS. It comes on like late on Saturday nights. It's called Keeping Up Appearances. Is anybody familiar with this? Okay. All right. A few people. So it's this British comedy, and it's about this woman, middle class person. She, she longs for society around her to esteem her as important. Her name is Mrs. Bucket. All right. We're not off to a great start. Bucket is your name, all right? But here's what happens. When people call her on the phone, she picks up. And I can't do a British woman's accent this morning. I'm realizing this in the moment. This is a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> I need to bail. <laughs> um, but, but truly, yeah, yeah we got to do it now. She goes, hello, right? And what happens is they, someone says, you know, Miss Bucket, and she goes, it's pronounced bouquet. It's clearly bucket. Like, there's no Q. It's a C and a K, all right? Like, phonetically, we know what's happening here. But in this moment, 
She's drawn to keep up her appearance, to be praised, to be esteemed by others. So she creates this veneer, this false shell, this thing that's, that's tiny and it's small, but it reveals this deep insecurity, this deep recognition that what am I if everybody around me can't praise me or give me value? Look at these words. Such a false shell. This is the world that Paul is writing to, these people in Rome. There's this false shell with empty content. Have you opened your phone today? You know, this is like what it's like. I didn't realize this till that long ago because I'm not like great with tech, but like the Instagram world and, and, and the Twitter world and the TikTok world, do you know what everything that's produced on there, every image, every video, everything that's sent out, do you know what it's called? Content. Content. Like, do you see the irony here? All of these people, people like you and I, and people that we know are producing these things, this image that they send out into, I mean, literally, like, into the ether and then to all of our phones so that we can see what they're doing. And look, I dig it on some level, right? Like, if you ate something awesome, I'm cool with you throwing a picture up of that. Because I might want to go and eat that too. So don't hear me. I'm, like, I'm not putting down your like, food pictures. And most importantly, like the pictures of your beautiful family. Love that. The fun things you've done. These are great things, right? But ultimately, I know you. And you know me. And the brokenness with which we, we fail to kind of, kind of push off when we believe in Christ, when we fail to believe the reality of the gospel for ourselves, we're destined to try to create content that would make the world think what we're doing is important, we're awesome, we got a lot going on, and we should be valued, we should be loved, we should be cared for. The gospel says, no, live in this way. It's a countercultural attitude of seeing oneself as insignificant. And that might sound really fatalistic, especially to a world that says, you matter. You are significant. I want to be really helpful or try to be really helpful and clear here and balance this. You are created in God's image. You are loved by God. But for the believer, for you and I, don't miss this. The place where we draw our significance from is not ourselves. It's not ourselves. It's from Jesus Christ. Why? How can I regard myself as insignificant? How can I do that? I can do that because I am in Christ Jesus. Paul would say it this way when he'd write to the church at Galatia. He'd say this. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I live in the body. So this is what he says. Everything that that describes the life that he lives in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying in the most beautiful way, I'm insignificant. Not I'm worthless, not I don't have value, because he describes those things clearly. How does he have worth? How does he have value? The Son of God, and we're going to see it even deeper in this passage, the Son of God loved him and gave himself for him. The righteous one, the holy one, becomes a curse. 
takes on the curse of sin for us, redeems us. So the insignificance that Paul's describing here, the way he's telling the church how to live, he's not saying you're worthless. He's saying find all of your significance, find all of your identity in Christ himself. And this word humility that's used here is negative talk to the world that he's writing to. This sounds preposterous. This is nuts. This is crazy talk to say, say that, we, that one would be humble. It's actually taking on the identity of a slave. Somebody who is truly, and hear this, and it's hard to hear. It's not, I don't like saying this, but this is true. In this society at this time, these people would be considered as property. Not even people, really. Not even regarded in a sense of being human. And Paul's writing, he's saying, hey, if there's any encouragement, if there's any joy, if there's any participation in the Spirit, get that life. Go live that way. Not only don't, just, just, it's not even just don't reject it, it's embrace it. Embrace that language. This thing that in this world is so undesirable. It's so undesirable in this world to think less of oneself, to be humble. But to the Lord, this is beautiful. And it's the beautiful picture that we're given of how to live. There's beauty in gospel humility. Look into verse 4. Look into verse 4. Let, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is what's happening here. The point is it's sacrificial behavior. It's self-sacrificial love. It's not a lack of concern for one's own interest altogether. This is not like abandon yourself wholly. Keller puts it this way, and I think this is, a, this is a helpful adage that a number of us have heard. This is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself from an intrinsic value standpoint. It's thinking of yourself less. This is the life of the believer. This is what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. To not only look to my own interests, but also the interests of others. And that language is really important. He's not saying abandon your interests. He's not saying that the things that you, you care for, the things that you need to do don't matter. He's saying think of others. Let this mind be in you. Why is it so important to do this? Why would the Philippians live in this kind of radical love? Look into verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is the model. Have this mind among you. Live in this way. Do these things. Live out the gospel in this manner. Live a life of humility. Have this mind. Everybody that, that, that's a part of this, collectively, us as believers, this is a corporate endeavor. We ought to together have this mind among ourselves. That I have the freedom to forget about me. I'm free. I'm not a slave to trying to create an identity for myself because it's in Christ Jesus. 
I'm free to love my neighbor. So now this is not a job, it's my joy. Do you get that? This is the freedom of the Christian. This is ultimately what Paul is saying here in this moment. And he's saying this in a dual way. He's saying, have this mind among you in Christ Jesus. So there's an active part of that. But he's also saying you can have this mind because Christ is in you. This this language, what's happening here, it almost sounds impossible. Does anybody like wake up thinking about other people? If you're mad at them, right? Right? But truly, that we would wake up and ultimately look to Christ. We'd wake up every new morning and see that God's mercies are new. That that would be a picture of his love for us. We'd be drawn into the reality of the gospel and, and begin to actively and purposefully think, man, how can I love my spouse today? How can I love my child today? How can I love my friend today? How can I love my neighbor today? How can I love my coworker today? Quite often, that sounds like a list of things that we have to do. But Christ has so radically freed us that we get to do these things joyfully. How can that be my focus? How can I wake up thinking about other people? Because I'm not worried about me anymore. I'm not worried about me anymore. How do you get to that place? This is the model and this is the motivation. Look at the remaining verses. Look at the description of who Jesus Christ is, who though he was in the form of God, did not account, or did not count rather, equality with God, a thing to be grasped. All right, there's some really, really helpful things in this moment. In this scripture, there are a couple of things that are really powerful. Notice it says, it doesn't say image, who being in the image of God, it says the form. So right at the very beginning of this passage, what we see is the essence of Jesus Christ. He is not near God or like a God. He is God himself. It's the very form of God. That's who Jesus is, the second person of the Trinity. And that might come into question. You might worry about that or wonder about that when you see this next line. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So if you read that in, in a very quick and cursory way, what it sounds like is like, well, if he's trying to grasp for equality, he must not be equal with the Father. That word grasped literally means to take advantage of. Hear this. It means to take advantage of. So read the text. If you got it before you, like literally look down at verse 6 right now and see this. Though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of. So God himself, Jesus Christ, the very son of God, doesn't take his power, his omniscience, his omnipotence, all that he is as a thing to be taken advantage of. But instead, this, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Taking on human likeness. This is what's happening this would not be strange from like a religious standpoint to people in Rome. 
there would be stories, mythological stories and mythology as religion that would happen in Rome where there would be someone that would take on human form. And this is what's so brilliant about what Paul is doing when he's writing this to these people. He's meeting them in their cultural moment. He's meeting them in their zeitgeist. He's saying to them, this is what is happening. Jesus is taking on human likeness. You know what that would sound like to them? It sounds like Zeus. It would sound like Zeus. And Zeus was regarded in this powerful, incredible, reverential way. But Paul does something different. He says that Jesus takes on this human form, and then the purpose is to become a slave. Now, this is not something Zeus would do. This would be something that is totally against the culture. And in this moment, what Paul is doing is he's exalting Christ because of the love that he has for his people. That if Zeus is this one that is to be revered as a god, why is he so worried about what others think of him? Yet it is Christ who is the creator of all. He becomes a slave. And look at this. And being found in human form, in verse 8, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now look, I think for you and I... It is so, so good that we're richly steeped, that a number of us have grown up in communities, Christian communities, where we we have deep uh, experience with, at least, uh, and then hopefully knowledge of the reality of who God is. You need to look at this verse and see the volition, the choices, the obedience of Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. We often... Based on our history and our experience and things we know, we're like, we had, God had to do that. That's God. He's God. He's got to do God stuff, right? Like, I do human stuff. I sin. I mess up. And God does God stuff. Like, there was just no choice involved. Like, it just had to be that way. Look at verse 8. Look at the language. He humbled himself, becoming obedient We fail to see this so often. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, this question of the cup passing is real. Jesus knows what he's about to endure. And he still does it. He chooses to go to the cross for you and me. Don't sit here this morning and think, well, yeah, I mean, God's got to do that because God's God. The Son of God chose this death for you and for me. That ought to drive us to a place of deep gospel humility. That's the beauty of the gospel. Look into verse 9. Therefore, so as a result of all these things, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When you see those words, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, that name has been there from the beginning. You see bestowed, and it seems like we're inclined to think that, okay, these things happened and now that's given. But ultimately, the way we need to see that is that it's been revealed to us. That bestowing, that naming is something for us humans to see and to recognize the name that's always been. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him. There's not a thing that was made apart from Him. So see this and understand that what Paul is saying to these believers right now is that this is the very revelation of God. It's Jesus Christ. It's his life. It's his death. It's his resurrection. The goal of us, of our life, ought to be to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The Presbyterians got this one right. All right? This is it. We ought to be people who truly Glorify the Lord and trust in Him. We recognize the beauty of... He takes the form of a servant. This is why Paul says, Call me servant. Call me slave. I don't care. Put Pit me against the world. This is what I'm going to glory in. My insufficiency. My insignificance, because everything that I am is wrapped up in the creator of the universe who came and took on flesh like mine so that I might have life in him. This is the beautiful, beautiful aspect of gospel humility. Can we be people that live that life? What does that look like for you this week? Even today, what does that look like for you and I? What's a practical way we can do that? The first thing, I think, is truly this. Lord, would you help me to wake up and see your mercies are new, to preach the gospel to myself, to believe the gospel, and then to look around me at the world that's around me, maybe even the the little world of the house that I live in and the people that dwell in it with me, and God, impress upon my heart ways I could love them, ways I can encourage them, ways I could listen, ways I could see their need. I think about that graduation commencement speech. And I think it's like. I think it's like being married. I think there's this person that's telling you all this really important stuff. And you just don't ever hear it. Because there's a bunch of stuff going on. I don't know if this resonates with anybody else. Or I'm just the worst at this. Probably both. (laughs) But look. look. Can we be drawn? Can our hearts be drawn? To the place that we can have the same mind. Do you know how we get there? The way that we get there is seeing the gospel, beholding the gospel, the beauty of Christ taking on our likeness, the very form of God, and taking on our likeness in an obedient, self sacrificial way, giving Himself so that you and I might have life. And for that, He is glorified. So much so that there is nothing, and hear this, there is nothing in this world that escapes his lordship. 
Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. There's a ton of debate about what these words actually mean for the implication of people's salvation and things like that. But suffice to say, we know this. There is nothing that is outside the lordship of Jesus. All power, all dominion, all authority is his. God, I give us excitement. That the God of all came to you and me. I want to give you one quote uh, from this saint that is really, really brilliant. You might have heard of him. His name is Augustine. Um, And this is... I think this is one of the most moving things that that I've read of late that helps me understand the scriptures in in a powerful way. This is what he writes surrounding this gospel that Paul presents in Philippians 2. What greater mercy is there than than this which imposed the form of a servant on the master of the world, such that bread itself was hungry. It's the bread of life, Jesus. That bread itself was hungry. Fullness itself was thirsty. Power itself was made weak. Health itself was wounded. Life itself was mortal. What greater mercy than that which presents to us the creator created, the master made a slave, the redeemer sold, the one who exalts humbled, the one who raised the dead killed. This is the story of Jesus. This is the power of the gospel that he would take on our brokenness. That all the fullness of God would come to a place and take on thirst. That the very bread of life would take on hunger. And step into the brokenness of our world. The one who is life itself who raises dead killed. Humbly. Willingly obediently, so that we might have life. If that doesn't drive you and I to humility, I don't know what will. Could Christ be the model and the motivation for us to think not only about ourselves, but others? Who's that person for you? Who are those persons? Think on them as we walk through this week, as we continually long to be gospel people and to live gospel humble lives. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, This mind you've given us in Christ Jesus. Would you draw us to the place. Where we truly. Live lives worthy of the gospel. Father we see what that looks like. We know what it looks like. This is what it looks like Lord. It looks like thinking. Father thinking of ourselves. Less. Looking to the needs of others. In a world that honors individual value, Father, could, could, the, could our world see a group of people who have been so radically transformed that they love one another as they love themselves? Could that be our story? God, I boldly ask that that would be us in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community. Father, would you cause Chelsea to see Westover to see, Wilsonville to see, the surrounding areas, the places in which we find ourselves. Would you let, Father, would you let us live out the gospel because we believe in it. And now we live in it together.
name above all names, we celebrate you this morning. We worship you this morning. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Each week, we typically, at the close of our service, and this is natural and normal, we respond in song. Um, quite often, um, you're here. You know what it looks like. You know what it feels like. It feels like we, we take these moments and we, we sing and we pray. This morning, we're going to sing about this name. Highly exalted, bestowed, revealed, the name above all names, Jesus. And this will be my encouragement to you this morning. We're going to do it in two parts. Ultimately, we're going to take this moment, and I would really love for us to to look at these words that are on the screen. To think on these words. In a unified way, having one mind, could we this morning think on the reality of the gospel? Can we do that together? Look at these screens really see these words and allow the Lord to speak this gospel truth into your heart, to preach the gospel to you. And then we're going to take a moment and we're going to sing it together and celebrate. But first, let's take this in. Let's contemplate. Let's experience the gospel in song together.